0: Welcome to Feminist Question Time, brought to you by Women's Human Rights Campaign, which is the leading international feminist NGO promoting women's sex-based rights. Our main focus is on defending women's sex-based rights against the threats posed by gender identity ideology. You can find more information on the website womensdeclaration.com where you will find our declaration on women's sex-based rights, which has been signed by 16,178 people from 130 countries and is supported by 318 organizations. This week, we are focusing on women in prison and we have a report from France. We have Florence Humbert from France, we have um, speaking about France. We have Heather Mason from Canada, Jessica Williams from USA Stroke Australia and Kate Coleman from the UK. I'm really um, pleased now to be able to introduce our first speaker, who is Florence Humbert from France. She's a feminist activist and expert in prostitution. She's going to tell us about the situation in France. Um, So, um, welcome Florence. Uh, Can you tell us about the current situation with gender identity ideology in France and what issues are urgent at the moment?
1: Hello, and thank you for inviting me. I will uh, explain what happened on the 7th of March because we had a feminist march to the 8th of March, but it uh, is unfortunately a, a Monday this year, so we, uh, several uh, feminist organizations organized a march on the 7th of March, and perhaps we can have the pictures right now. And on this picture, you can see some abolitionist feminists who um, uh, have uh, um, uh, occupied a, a statue in the middle of the Republic place in Paris with uh, uh band condemning pimping and prostitution, and mentioning that Jackie and Michelle, a very well known pornograph site in France, has been convicted of pimping uh, since uh, several months, and is a very, very big victory for the feminism in France, that they have been uh, condemned, convicted um, for pingping, of pimping and condemned. And other uh, band are speaking about balance tumor, that's me too in France. And other uh, bandrolls about prostitution, you can uh, see on the other pictures too. Perhaps you can um, show the other pictures. So, and that's the uh, attack of uh, the people with another band with a uh, band against Islamophobia. And it is the flag of the anti-fascists, and we, the the, the feminists on the statue, were were attacked by uh, so-called feminists, anti-fascist feminists, who uh, uh, absolutely uh, can't afford that uh, prostitution is not uh, empowerment for women. So there are very uh, aggressive fighting. To, for the right to be prostitutes and against the abolitionism. So, in uh, under these young people uh, with the anti-fascism uh, anti-fascism uh, flag and those uh, f- so-called feminists against Islamophobia were a lot of men. Uh, a, a lot of men that you you couldn't identify as men at the first uh, view, and a lot of. Uh, People who are uh, uh, profiting from pimping, but don't say that because pimping is forbidden in France. So they appeared on the place and they uh, combated. Uh, they, they tried to force the feminists on the statue to come down and to destroy their bandrolls and uh, attacked them so uh, with uh, with violence. Some. Uh, people f- uh, tried to protect the feminists who were on the statues and were beaten and uh, uh, thrown with eggs. They uh, threw a lot of eggs on the women in the uh, on the place of the Republic, and they burned their bandroll at the end. Of course, they they tried they uh, succeeded in uh, taking them the roll and b- burned them. So several uh, media have uh, reported on this issue, but unfortunately, uh, the the media, m- most of the media, say oh, uh, oh uh, feminists are combating each other, and uh, of course, uh, it's a fatal uh, destiny for our fight. Uh, it's very uh, it's very damaging us. So the ma- the most uh, well-known feminist who was attacked is Margaret Stern. Margaret Stern was by the women for a long time, and she has um, uh, organized this uh, protest here. I don't know, I mean, she's not to see on this, but when you go on Facebook or on Twitter to Margaret Stern, you can have a lot of pictures on the, the one who you can see on the right side is Betty Lajga, Sam Betty is a, a Moroccan feminist uh, who is uh, between uh, uh, pendling be- between France and Morocco and is very active against uh, prostitution and uh, against violence against women too. And, um, the main p- purpose they have is to protect the right of men to sexually abuse and uh, rape young women. They have no uh, paroles against violence against women, only paroles against uh, uh, the fact that prostitution is uh, not allowed in France today. So the first attacked band roll was the slogan, long lives of female sex. It was the first who uh, was three three with eggs. Uh, It is not uh, uh, something uh, with, it has nothing to do with prostitution or something like that. So we don't know if the attackers were really aware about what they attacked in fact. Perhaps it's a a very um, brutal uh, violence against uh, feminists. They absolutely don't know what uh, they attacked in in fact. Uh, Margaret Stern was interviewed by Jelly Bindel in English in uh, the critic thecritic.co.uk. Perhaps you can see the article. I can give it in the chat after. So it was uh, an event where we had to, to struggle against uh, trans activists. Not only trans activists, but a lot of. The other struggle is the fact that uh, the, the Ministry of Health is uh, targeting teenagers with uh, f- um, the homepage on Exprime, who is mentioning the gender dysphoria as something uh, teenagers can suffer from, and uh, explaining gender dysphoria is uh, on why the teenager are uh, uh, uncomfortable with it. It is only. Mentioning transition so transition feels to discrimination and discrimination feels uh, f- uh, leads to transition, it is a circular explanation. I wonder if uh, uh, any teenager would understand in a, uh, something to this uh, explanation. But, uh, act, um, the fact is, in, in France, it is not allowed for teenager to access hormone t- therapy and uh, they are trafficked underground. Hormone uh, medicines are trafficked underground, but it's not allowed and it's not um, uh, paid. There is a very big struggle at the moment to let the f- uh, physicians prescribe hormone therapy to adults because when they prescribe it, it is paid by the public health insurance. That means every French uh, worker, every French employer has to pay for the transition, but they don't want, the trans activists don't want that transition as a medical issue. Because it was, uh, uh, it was um, uh, illegally socialized so when they were, uh, they they had to, be in a psychot- psychotherapy within two years, and it has been removed from the rules. So it, it they have not, they have not to prove anything before asking for a hormone therapy or a surgery, because it's not an illness. That's their uh, assessment all the time. They say it's not an illness, it's not an illness, but the health insurance has to pay for it. So they have. The, the physicians have to prescribe. The, um, so the, there is a, a, a committee of some psychologists of psychiatrists who um, manage the demands. And the, one of the members of this uh, committee is Elisabeth Rudinesco, a long-time fighter for the right to same-sex marriage, for an example. And, and she's a, uh, the author of an essay, It is oneself as a king about excesses of identity policy. It has been published this year, 2021. And uh, she has been defined and criticized in, uh, uh, the, um, in the web because she has said, uh, there is nowadays an epidemic of transgenderism in France. She said uh, something like that in an interview. And she, there was a, a storm of attack uh, against her because uh, she said something like that. So the most of the lesbian organization were asked if she accepted biological men who were uh, becoming female. Uh, most of them refused, some of them accepted. And in, uh, it was 2010 uh, on the years, uh, in the beginning of the 21st century, and 2010, some lesbian organizations were, leaden, were uh, led, sorry, led by men, by uh, so-called trans women, and uh, some of them refused and were uh, threatened. And and uh, of course they have to manage to uh, share the state funding and the, sub, the sponsoring. Uh, it it is not. Do- double uh, uh, sponsoring because there is double so much uh, organization for lesbian. Some lesbian who didn't want to accept men in their uh, organization has had to grant another organization. So when there are double organization, they can't receive so much money as when there is only one organization. So it is, um, it, it is a financial attack. So now, I don't know if I have some minutes more. I would like to see, to let you see how we counterattack. Because some young feminists in uh, France have uh, found each other. It is. Uh, I'm very grateful to Joe because it is because of the WHRC that we found to each other, and we ha- we have be- begun to uh, to. Uh, uh, think about a way, I hope it will work, yes, to f- think about a way to educate other feminists, because some feminists absolutely don't understand the struggle with trans activists, and to educate uh, organizations and per- perhaps to go in schools with these uh, short uh, uh, webin- webinars. So that's the first one who has, uh, I mean three of them, are uh, online on YouTube since today. It's the very beginning now. And tr- I, I will let you see the pictures and try to comment in, in English, but it is in French, of course. So, farm is uh, We Women, and it's the name we have given to us. The story of the trans activists is based on the two movements, the movement for the rights for gays and the feminist movement. And they were, uh, they were working together, but separated. And in the uh, gay movement, you have the queer and LGBT, the gay le- lesbians, and in the feminist movements, the lesbians and the heterosexual women. Some of the women uh, lesbians g- went in mixed gay and lesbian movements, some of them only lesbian movement, and some of them in the feminist movements. So the transsexuals appeared to be uh, gay men who wanted to become women and played with the role models. Uh, LGBT and queer were integrative. So they fight, uh, they they are integrative. They fight for recognition as well as hetero, in the heteronormativity. And the men, the heterosexual men were uh, Alied or absolutely nothing they were not in- integrated in the movement heterosexual men were not integrated in the movement, but now they are because they become lesbian trans 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 lesbian so on uh, the 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 end of the video is that all uh, persons who uh, criticize uh, that Mexi- uh, the uh, trans activism are thefts, but that's something you know very well. And on this panel, uh, you can see uh, uh, girls with dicks and um, boys with vulva and uh, transphobes with beaten, uh, uh, you know, uh, traces that they are beaten and it was it was a slogan who was written on the statue in the place uh, republic place in paris after the events of the 7 of march they they write they wrote uh, on the on the statue beat a trance save beat beat a trance save a trance it was the slogan this, they wrote about it okay thank you
0: Okay, we're going to now go to Heather Mason. She's from Canada. She's a former federal prisoner and founding member of Course Bar, which is Canadian Women's Sex Based Rights. And she's going to talk to us about the history of women's corrections and the difference between men and women's prisons. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Over to you, Heather.
2: Hi, thanks for having me. Um, as you know, uh, my name's Heather, and I was incarcerated in jails and um, the women's prison in Ontario. So the first time I was incarcerated was 2014. Um, I had a drug problem, and it kept leading me back to jail. Um, and this is, uh, it's, it's common. That's what a lot of women in Canada are actually in jail for. So women are the fastest growing prison population in Canada and worldwide. And a lot of the factors that result in the incarceration of women is violence against women, um, poverty, drug addiction, um, drug addiction resulting from trying to numb ourselves um, from our sexual and physical abuse in our childhood and throughout our um, young adult life. So most of us numb ourselves with drugs, And then a lot of us end up in prostitution actually to be able to afford to buy our drugs. Um, I find that most of us women turn to selling our bodies to make money um, for our drugs, whereas men are out committing more violent crimes. Um, So the way that women end up going to jail is a lot different. Uh, Many have been traumatized. It's about 80% of women that are incarcerated in our federal prisons that are, in prison for navigating um, crimes relating to poverty and abuse. Um, And a lot of these women that are even in for so-called violent crimes are typically acting in self-defense or in defense of their children. Um, A lot of them plead guilty because they don't wanna deal with the trial um, and how long it takes to actually proceed through the legal system. And most of these women that are convicted of the so-called violent crime, they're actually, um, and that they serve life sentences, they actually score lower on the risk assessment um, tool that Correctional Services of Canada uses um, compared to women that are convicted of lesser crimes, which is actually pretty interesting. So I wanted to give a little bit of a back down, back down, background on women's corrections. I feel like people aren't aware that men's corrections and women's corrections are different. So up until essentially 30 years ago, women's corrections resembled men's. There wasn't a whole lot of difference. Um, So the first women's federal prison, so in Canada we have provincial jails and we have federal prisons and our federal prisons are for two years plus a day. so in 1934, they actually opened a prison for women in Kingston, Ontario. And within, like, within years of it opening, the first commission called for its closure. Um, over the course of them being open, they had no more than or no less than 15 inquiries or reports calling for the closing of prison for women. A lot of the criticism that was included in these reports um, was like the lack of specific programming for women, um, geographical dislocation since Canada is so big and there was only one prison in Ontario, Um, separation from women and their families and their communities, um, inappropriate classifications um, and we're still dealing with this one overrepresentation of Indigenous women. They top forty-two percent of our prison population. Um, so they found that women did not do well in environments that are built for men. Go figure. Um, in 1989, they actually created a task force for federally sentenced women. Um, And then in 1990, they released the report called Creating Choices. So you can look up the Creating Choices report and this is the foundation of how Women's Corrections was built. Um, And the task force um, was co-chaired by Correctional Services of Canada and the Canadian Association of Elizabeth Fry Societies, which is actually supposed to be Canada's only national um, organization that advocates for federally sentenced women and they have turned their backs on us. Um, They are mute. They have no comment regarding this matter. They don't want to speak on it. Um, So yeah, they are the ones that help build women's corrections and now they are responsible for dismantling women's corrections. So between 1989 and 1992, Seven women committed suicide in prison for women because they could not handle the horrific living conditions. Six of those seven women were actually indigenous women. Um, So that really, really got things moving when all those women committed suicide. And actually they're still fighting for a Memorial Garden in Kingston right now for those women who took their lives to make prisons better for us. Prisons are not good for us, but they gave their lives to make it better living conditions for us. And the women can't even get a Memorial Garden to remember that, that's crazy. Um, 1994, there was what we call the P4W incident, which is actually a strip search incident. So in 1994, there was a lot of hostile um, fighting with the guards and the women started rioting over racist comments and um, the way that they were being treated. And four days after the riot started, they all was calmed down. The women were in their cells sleeping. Well, the warden made a call to have the men's site deployed to the women's site. So that means taking guards that are trained in like tactical response that work with men. And they had them come into the women's prison. And then they went into the women's cells, they pulled them out of bed and they cut their clothes off of them while they were holding them down on the floor and they strip searched them. There's video footage of it, very small clip. They tried to hide that. Um, And then they put them in these little house coats and like paper house coats and slippers and put them in the back of the transport bus, which is actually you stand in cages that are locked. And then they brought them over to Kingston Penitentiary which is a men's prison. And in the video, you can hear the men screaming like swear words and all sorts of things while the women were getting out of the bus. And you could see how scared they were. And they put them in segregation in Kingston Penitentiary, and they were there for a few months. They had to launch a habeas corpus to get themselves taken out of segregation. Um, It was actually one of my really good friends that was involved with that riot, and that was brought to um, Kingston Penitentiary. And she said that they were stuck in segregation with like a bunch of sex offenders, like rapists and diddlers, like screaming at them all the time. And they said they were so scared. Um, And then in 1996 was like the actual commission of the events that led up to that strip search. So all of this happened, Um, there was a lot of research, there was a lot of interviews, and um, the Creating Choice report became the cornerstone on which CSC built um, the six regional prisons. Um, And this report is their justification for the significant differences between men's and women's prisons. So currently Correctional Services of Canada is really big on telling everyone that they're not just transferring um, a male who identifies as a woman to any given security facility, but they're lying. Okay, so yes, men and women's prisons have minimum, medium and maximum security classification, but they're different. It's the same name classification, but women do not have maximum security measures or risk. So what they've done is they've taken the risk assessment tool that was designed for white men and they've taken it and they've applied it to women. Well, the problem that they had was that the women weren't fitting across all three levels of security because they don't have that risk. So what they did was is they downsized the, so they made it smaller so that they could apply it to women, and that way they could fit across the three security levels. So when you have maximum transfers from men's prison transferring to women's prisons, you are in fact transferring them to a lower security facility because they do not have the security measures. So CSC blatantly lies about this, and this can all be proved in all the court documents. So if you go on and you look at court documents where they fought prior transfers, they talk about the security risk. They talk about the differences between the structure and protocols for women's and men's prisons. So there's less security, um, which includes perimeter fences, um, house style accommodations, we have no firearms. Also, they're not allowed to use violence as a first approach. They have to talk. Um, they, we have the mother child programming. Um, we also have policies that prevent male staff from doing all that female staff can do. Um, they also have gender or cross monitoring, gender training. I probably screwed up the way that said, but they have to, men have to demonstrate an ability to be able to work in women's prisons. They can't just go and work there. So we know and CSC knows and everyone else knows the differences between women's and men's corrections. It's, it's not rocket science, right? Um, so what is happening is is there's transfers that are coming. For an example would be Quebec. So Jamie had applied for a transfer and was denied because of the security risk. So Jamie, and I always screw up the last name, it's like Boulachance, it's it's French. Um, He evaded police for 13 years, um, made two major escape attempts from men's prisons, and he was held in maximum, more like super max. So um, Jamie is one of seven prisoners in the province that required armed guards as escorts. So obviously denied the transfer. So then Jamie got surgery, which means now CSC can't prevent the transfer. Jamie's transferred from Essentially supermax security risk and measures to a medium security facility. So the guards have been protesting about work conditions and safety concerns and measures outside of the women's prison in Quebec. As well as Jamie's lawyer was interviewed saying, Well, the Jamie's a woman. There's no reason Jamie can't be in a woman's prison. They're just gonna have to increase security measures. Well part of women's corrections is to have women in the least restrictive environment possible and to be trauma informed. That's how women's corrections are supposed to be. That's how they were justified with building them the way that they were built. So now what they're doing is they're going, okay, yeah, I can understand there's risk here. We just need to increase the security. So what is happening is women must now accommodate these transfers and we have to resort back to men's corrections because they are a risk to one public. Jamie is 110% a risk to public safety and a risk to women. So now women have to give up what they have and we have to go back to an environment built for men which is absolutely ridiculous with the fact that seven women committed suicide and that was the pushing point for you to build women's corrections. Another thing with all of this that's going on as well is that we have, we're open, right? So we live in houses. We don't have cameras in our houses. The guards come through once every two hours um the guards aren't watching us right so if they're being transferred in they're on the medium compound with us they live in the house with us we share a bathroom we share a kitchen we share a laundry room um they're they're in there with us it's like a gated community that's locked and you can't get out right um And so we're seeing a lot of maximum security prisoners that want to transfer. And with CSC's policy, it is based on gender identity or self-expression. Anyone can apply for a transfer and it's up to the deputy commissioner for women to approve or deny the transfer. Um, And they've now created um, a gender consideration review board but they're not required to use it. So that board is only there if the deputy commissioner can't make a decision and it needs to ask for help. So with their new policy as well, which is not up, I have the, I have the copy of the new policy. Um, they were taking consultations on it until November. So they should be fixing it and putting it up within this year. Um, The same transfer requirements are the same, regardless if you're male or female. Um, But we all know that the criteria is different, right? Uh, They will not transfer trans men. We have 12 trans men in our federal prison system right now with us. So essentially, our women's prisons are actually co-ed. So we have women, we have trans men, we have trans women, we have men, um, it's just like one big free for all men's prisons are still the same. Nothing has been done, which is really crazy to me to think about because two thirds of our prisoners with gender considerations, um, and I say gender considerations, cause they're not trans, they're not all trans women. And that's what people don't get. They don't have to be trans women. They only have to express themselves as it, if they want or not. Right. It's gender identity or expression. So when they're even transferred, they don't even need to be wearing women's clothing or act like a woman. They can have a beard. They can walk around with their dick out. They can do whatever they want. Um, So two thirds of those prisoners are still in men's prisons. And a lot of them want to stay. A lot of them are um, homosexual. Why would they ever want to be with women? So what we've done here is we're saying... CSC took the shortcut and was like, okay, we're not discriminating. We are helping um, people with gender identity, da-da-da-da-da. But they are. They they've they've wiped their hands so that they don't have to deal with the situation, right? So all those prisoners, so gay, bisexual, gender non-conforming, trans women, all of them who are at risk, because gay and bisexual men are at just as much risk as well in men's prisons, are still in men's prisons. They're still being discriminated against. They're not getting women's clothing. They're not getting makeup or those other things that they're requesting. So what have we done here? We're downloading 100% of the risk from men's like violence from men's prisons onto women. We haven't helped two thirds. They're still at risk. Are we just gonna ignore them? We're just not gonna pay attention to them there? And they're discriminating against trans men because there've been requests and they've denied them for overriding health and safety concerns. So they're plopping in a group in with women and then forgetting about them, not taking care of their needs, not taking care of anything. And we still haven't solved any of the problems. So I feel like they should be Looking at and it, it's possible men's prisons are big and there's a lot of them. They do have men have like living units with wings and pods. So there are prisons where they could take a wing or a living unit from the men's institutions and they can make it an LGBTQ wing. Well, not the L, but um, make it the wing. And they're not a hundred percent segregated from the prison. They'll, okay. They'll still be able to um, go to gym and programs and stuff with the rest of the institution, but they'll have their needs taken care of. They'll have their programs. They'll have access to any clothing, makeup, et cetera, that they want. And then we're not putting women at risk. Adam is actually Canada's youngest dangerous offender um, and then is in Fraser Valley for women right now. Um, So Adam was the one that he got the gender reassignment or sex reassignment surgery and the double D breast implants paid for by taxpayers um, and is in Fraser Valley. So he was the one that um, molested or raped a three-month-old baby um, and the baby had so much damage that it had to have reconstructive surgery um, and also confessed to killing a child when he was younger as well. So um, I'm actually hearing a lot of reports um, coming out of there because Adam is not happy that he had to have surgery and that the rest of the men that are in there still have their penis. Um, So there's actually been a lot of interesting things coming out of Fraser Valley because currently they have about five last I counted. Fraser Valley only has 92 people in it. So the trans population at that women's prison is actually 5.4%. That's what people don't understand. There's only 693 women incarcerated federally across Canada. So when you have such a small portion and when you have a population that's only 92 women, you start putting them in women's prisons and that really, really changes the dynamic very, very quickly um, because they're small. Um, also, there's another question in here, and I feel like it's uh, the org, honestly, I feel like Morgan's here. Um, they're going off about trans women that were in women's prisons being transferred back to men's prisons. CSC only admits to transferring 12, and I can tell you where all 12 of those are. There's actually more because they're not counting the ones that have had surgery. CSC does not transfer men who have had surgery back to men's institutions. and the ones that they've admitted to transferring there's only one that transferred back to men's prisons and that was actually michael williams who raped and murdered a 13 year old indigenous woman and had issues at fraser valley and the women had issues with him and he actually got jumped in maximum security by a bunch of indigenous women who were abused as children because of the way that he was being in the prison um, the things that he was saying and just obviously the presence too when you're confined in those places. So he actually voluntarily transferred back to Kent, Kent prison for women, or for men, sorry, and he actually beat up another trans prisoner at Kent and was shipped to Saskatchewan Penn. Um, So I don't know who these other trans people are. I guess Correctional Services of Canada is lying about how many they're transferring. That's the only conclusion I can come to there.
0: We're now going to hear from Jessica Williams. She's from USA Stroke Australia. She's a feminist activist, author, formerly incarcerated woman and co-founder of Single Sex Prisons WA. Um, So thank you so much, Jessica. Over to you. I will share a little bit about myself um, and then giving a speech about my
3: personal experiences in prison and then ending with a short presentation and report about the situation in Western Australia with prison policies. My name is, as you know, my name is Jessica Williams. I'm 38 years old. Um, I moved to Western Australia from the United States in 2010. And since then, I've been an activist and I uh, have accomplished things for animals, people and the environment. Um, I'm a political lobbyist and I've run a very successful activist organization and website for the last several years. I'm also part of the Women's Human Rights Campaign Australia and New Zealand working group. Um, Today, I will be speaking about a topic that is extremely personal to me, and it's something that I know is consistently forgotten about by the general masses, you know, the general public, um, and our state and federal representatives. Um, I will be speaking about our vulnerable sisters in prison, and how our politicians are failing to protect them. I would have preferred to use this opportunity to discuss some of the countless systemic issues that um, exist within our penal systems and, and facilities like deaths in custody, the privatization of jails and prisons, male guards in women's prisons, or the issue of women being incarcerated in the first place. Unfortunately, something is happening now to policies and legislation, which is having a very disturbing effect on incarcerated girls and women. And that issue demands our immediate attention and action. That issue is male prisoners being housed as women in prison. Men can already claim us women as an identity in everyday life but now uh, more and more they can claim to be a woman and be placed and treated as a woman inside prisons and jails. It's something I never could have imagined happening. Our society should not have reached the point where laws entertained the notion that sex can be changed or that gender is anything more than a set of sexist and stereotypical traits forced on women and men, yet we did and now look at where we are. What is being done to our vulnerable sisters in prison is wrong and unforgivable. The reason this issue is so personal and important to me is because when I was 17 years old, I spent the better part of a year locked up in numerous county jails, as they're referred to in the US, and two different prisons. The first prison was Maximum Security, the North Carolina Department of Corrections. I had been convicted of nonviolent crimes, and they were my first offenses. But nevertheless, there I was, absolutely petrified, extremely vulnerable, and placed as an adult. It was hell on earth, and I genuinely did believe that I might die there. Thankfully, due mainly to my age of 17, I was eventually moved to a minimum security prison to finish my sentence. Even though female prisons are far less violent than male prisons, hierarchies do still exist, and I was at the bottom of the one at Fountain Correctional Center for Women. Due to my age and the fear that resonated off of me, I was threatened on a regular basis and my belongings were often stolen by other uh, prisoners. I don't hold ill will against them, by the way. Um, Something happens to you when you're inside prison, especially if you're there for a very long time. You have to adapt to your surroundings. Um, You know, when you're separated from your family and everything you know and, and are familiar with. Uh, So you definitely do have to adapt to your surroundings to survive. Privacy and dignity do not exist in prisons and jails. During my incarceration, upon entry and at any time at the discretion of prison officers, prisoners were required to take off our clothing, including bras and underwear, often within eyesight of other prisoners, and while officers or guards, both male and female, watched us. Then we were each required to turn our backside to the prison officers, spread our butt cheeks, squat and cough three times to show that we were not holding any contraband internally. Women with larger breasts had to lift them up one at a time for inspection. And this did apply to other areas of larger bodies as well. Showers and toilets are not private in prison or in jails. (laughs) In many prisons and jails, you can look across or beside you and see the breasts or full bodies of the other women showering. If other women or guards want to, they can see your entire body during those intimate and vulnerable moments in the shower or while sitting on the toilet. Only in the prison school, where I earned my high school equivalency during my incarceration, Did I find bathroom stalls with doors similar to what we see in public bathrooms? But even when using those stalls, if you were ordered to open the door, you had to listen. You were told when to sleep and when to wake and when to eat in prison. When you were a prisoner, your belongings don't really belong to you. Guards can ransack them at any time and confiscate items. You can't have what's considered to be hard jewelry like certain rings and necklaces, you can't have mobile phones, and you definitely don't have internet access at your fingertips. You can only make phone calls at certain times and for certain lengths of time, and any letters that people send to you are inspected and often opened and read before they reach you, if they reach you at all. You depend greatly on money being sent to you from friends and family to purchase anything food and hygiene products above the usual cheap uh, quality of state-issued items, and you have nothing but time. time idle time to anguish over what you're missing out on, what you have done to your life, all of the loved ones you miss, and what terrors may await you the next day. As I mentioned earlier, women in prison are often forgotten by most people and definitely by our politicians, but also by too many feminists. So anytime I have the opportunity to talk about this, I speak honestly and genuinely from my heart to make the most of these opportunities. I hope I leave you with a distinct and lasting feeling of what it could be like to have your freedom taken from you, what it could feel like to be a woman in prison. Not many people will know a woman that has been to prison, much less get to hear about her experiences. But today's attendees are getting that rare opportunity with myself and the other speakers. So please trust me when I say that being incarcerated is by far one of the most isolating, overwhelming, and traumatizing experiences that a human being can go through And all of that is multiplied exponentially for incarcerated women. Now, the elected officials put in charge of prisons and the policies thereof are allowing male-born people to claim they are women and they're allowing these men to be housed as women. It is absurd. The organization organization I co-created single sex prisons WA produced a comprehensive report which obliterates any justification for just uh, any justification for policies which allow men to be housed and treated as women whether that is allowed because of transsexual status or because of self-identification because a male is a male with or without a penis and we are not an identity Single Sex Prisons WA holds principles which include the support for provisions to address at-risk gender diverse prisoners because we are well aware of the risks associated with a male that may have breasts housed with other males. But these provisions should never, ever come at the expense of the rights, protections and provisions for female prisoners. The overwhelming majority of incarcerated women are locked up for nonviolent crimes and many for the failure to pay fines, especially in Australia with indigenous women. And of the women convicted of violent crimes, many of them are in prison because they finally found the capacity to defend themselves against violent men. The dilemma of where to house at risk trans identified males is not a female prison problem. It is not a female problem. It is a male prison problem, a male problem. Policies which allow male prisoners to be housed as females are not only a perversion of law, facts and reality, but they are a clear and unlawful breach of our sex-based rights and protections. As women, we know how little of a voice we genuinely have in this world, politically and socially. Our vulnerable sisters in prisons don't even have that. They have a voice, but hardly anyone is listening. They are the forgotten members of our communities. Even dedicated, intelligent and hyper-aware women routinely forget about prisons and the girls and women inside those lonely and hellish walls. I hope people understand that even the women fighting against having their sport categories invaded, their bathrooms and pools invaded, their clubs and programs taken over, still have options in comparison. We get to go home, be with our family and friends, go on social media to vent and organize with other women. And most importantly, we can freely exercise our right to vote and consistently lobby our politicians to try and change the policies and laws that are harming us. But incarcerated females cannot do those things. They have little to no options and nowhere to escape. They are some of the most vulnerable women on our planet. They are prisoners. They are not pieces of rubbish that our society can just throw away. They are women. They are me. I am a survivor of violence and trauma like most women in prison. And I am a woman that has value and worth just like every single woman that is stuck inside a dirty, isolated, depressing prison. Remember them, remember that politicians have abandoned them and their rights. They need us to fight for them just as passionately and consistently as we fight for other causes. Let my story and the stories of the other speakers be burned into your heart and mind so that you never forget them because we must do more to protect our vulnerable sisters in prison. I am reporting on behalf of Single Sex Prisons WA um, on the issues incarcerated girls and women are facing in Western Australia pertaining to policies regarding gender identity ideology, self-identification, and then what Single Sex Prisons WA is doing about it. As of September 2020, There were 685 female prisoners in Western Australia, representing just over 10% of the total prison population. Women from Aboriginal communities are significantly overrepresented, compromising uh, 47% of women in prison. This is a shockingly high figure when one considers that the the total Aboriginal population in Western Australia comprises only around 2% of the total population in our state. As I mentioned earlier, Um, There are many issues that women in prison face, but the policies which allow males to be housed as females are presenting serious issues that need immediate attention and action. There are two policies in Western Australia of interest regarding either gender identity ideology, transsexual status, or self-ID that are putting incarcerated girls and women at risk. I will focus on the 4.6 policy because it is the one that allows for cross-sex placement based on self-identification. The 4.6 policy was implemented by stealth on November 23rd, 2020 at the very end of the parliamentary sitting year, leaving no time for uh, any raising awareness or opposition. The policy sets out provisions that directly confirm. Conflict with certain WA legislation, so that's state legislation, primarily the Gender Reassignment Act 2000 and the Equal Opportunity Act 1984. In addition, the 4.6 policy undermines and overrides some protections in the Federal Sex Discrimination Act and CEDAW, specifically Article 1 and 2, as well as Rule allow- 11 of the Nelson Mandela rules, the UN standard minimum rules for the treatment of prisoners. This is all stemming from the 2017 WA Labor Party platform called Stronger Together, WA's Plan for Gender Equality, where WA Labor defines women as anyone who identifies as one. And these types of Platforms and policies are considered legal due to some changes to our Federal Sex Discrimination Act, where the definitions of woman and man were removed and provisions for gender identity were added. Single Sex Prisons WA undertook an extensive review of the 4.6 policy. And as a result, 83 key issues and over 250 secondary issues were identified. I will cover some of those issues now using the articles of the Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights as a guide. Jails and prisons are segregated by biological sex. We know this, not by identities or feelings, but the 4.6 policy allows trans-identified male prisoners to pick a preferred placement based on their self-proclaimed gender identity. There is no need for hormone or surgery, for hormone treatment or surgery. It also allows for trans identified male prisoners to to request the gender, which is used interchangeably with sex, of the prison officer they want to conduct searches. And that does include strip searches. This is against Australian federal law, but it's still allowed. So the sex-based rights of female prisoners and female prison officers are being infringed upon by such provisions. We have two female, uh, sorry, two penal facilities in WA that cater to the particular needs of pregnant and nursing women and their babies. The advancement of this policy will inevitably lead to men identifying into these facilities. Otherwise it could be seen as discrimination According to inconsistent interpretations of current anti discrimination laws, Articles 4, 5, and 7 are relevant because the limited and inconsistent resources, programs, and services available for female prisoners, uh, females in prison, will become even more inaccessible, not to mention dangerous, when males are given access to those spaces and afforded those resources and services. When male prisoners are housed with females, the freedom of opinion, expression, and movement of girls and women is restricted, whether or not the male prisoners each have a penis. These restrictions can and will occur anywhere in a prison. Article eight of the declaration is about reaffirming the need for the elimination of violence against women. Violence against women is a given when males or housed with females in prison, especially considering how much more violent males are and how much more violent male prisoners are, uh, sorry, male prisons are. In Australian prisons that have already implemented policies like COPP 4.6, women have been harassed and assaulted by trans-identified males. Article eight also highlights the need to collect accurate sex segregated data in to better assess and address male violence against women and children. The 4.6 policy requires prison officers to collect and keep official records of claimed identities and chosen names instead of biological sex and legal names. So we know that finding thorough and consistent sex segregated data is not common and policies like COPP 4.6 are making a bad problem much worse. Article 9 is unfortunately relevant because the 4.6 policy does cover youth facilities and youth detainees. And as mentioned previously, previously, this can negatively impact pregnant and incarcerated uh, women, their babies, and young children. So what has Single Sex Prisons WA been doing about all of this? As mentioned earlier, we undertook an extensive review and we identified over 300 issues. We've sent that review to state and federal ministers, including the ones listed on the screen, as well as human rights law centers and groups. We've received responses so far from the ones that are highlighted. We have an online petition, which is to the state government, and we are in the process of creating uh, a federal e-petition. We have a Facebook page, a Twitter account, and a website to help us raise awareness and gather people around this issue. We are working closely with two of the speakers today, uh, Heather Mason, creator of Canadian Women's Sex-Based Rights, and Kate Coleman, director of Keep Prison Single Sex UK. And Kate recently added a page to her website for Western Australia, where you can go and find the information about this issue and what we're doing. So that's really cool. And thank you, Kate. Our goals through single sex prisons are simple and straightforward. We want to raise as much issue uh, awareness as possible about this issue. We want to put a lot of pressure on our state and federal politicians to repeal this policy. And most importantly, we want to have success repealing or amending the laws, which are giving way to policies that allow men to be housed as women in prison.
0: Brilliant. Um, Heather, there's so much more. It would be great to hear from you, but we're going to have to move on yeah. just time. But I'm sure there'll be lots more times. I hope there'll be lots more times to hear from you and um, lots more events that uh, the women here can hear from you. So let's go to Jessica Williams now. Have you got anything to add? Yes. Uh,
3: yes i do um and it happens to coincide with one of the questions from beck she asked uh do we think feminists should do more to reach out to women in prison or women recently recently released is there anything from my own experience that would have helped in terms of feminist solidarity absolutely um it there there's you know, if I had more time, I'd talk about heaps of different things you could do, but I do have a couple of suggestions. If you would like to support incarcerated girls and women, I encourage you to find your nearest women's prisons. Just go on Google and look up women's prisons near your location and reach out to them. You can usually find an email address. You may get passed around to a couple of people, but just stick at it. Um, ask them what types of donations they accept and need. Some prisons accept things like yarn, you know, wool or cotton for the women to knit with. Uh, Some prisons may accept reading materials. And then some prisons also collect business suits and business attire for women when they go to their court appearances or when they're released and, and clothing for when they're released and things like that. So that's definitely something you can do, reach out to the prisons in your area and the post-release facilities and refuges, um, you know, domestic violence refuges and things like that. also, please look into the laws and policies for corrective services in your area. If they, if you find that they are similar to the ones that we've discussed today, please reach out to the relevant politicians, your your minister, or politicians for corrective services for women, um, and and things like that. Write them emails, letters. Uh, call them and lobby them to amend or repeal those policies and laws um, and get everyone you can involved along with that. Women in prison definitely need to be remembered and put at the forefront
0: of our minds and our uh, discussions, especially our feminist discussions. We're now going to go to Kate Coleman, who's from the UK. She's the founder of Keep Prisons Single Sex, So welcome, Kate.
4: I'm going to outline the situation for prisons in England and Wales and also discuss the recent judicial review, which we had at the beginning of March. Um, So before I do that, I want to make a quick, you know, possibly quite obvious distinction. But nevertheless, it's still quite helpful between actual sex legal sex and self-identified sex slash gender identity. So actual sex is your sex as registered at birth. Legal sex may differ from your actual sex in the case where an individual has obtained legal recognition of acquired gender via the Gender Recognition Act 2004 and has obtained a gender recognition certificate. In that circumstance, the sex marker on the birth certificate will be changed. So legal sex is whatever it currently says on your birth certificate, and that may differ from your sex as registered at birth. Self-identified sex slash gender identity is where someone hasn't gone through the legal process of obtaining a GRC. But some documentation, including your passport and driving license, can still have the sex marker changed on the basis of self-ID. And I think that's something that quite a lot of people don't realise. And that was one of the issues which, well, that was the issue which came up Uh, in the judicial review that Fair Play for Women brought in regard to the census. Um, I don't want to go into the GRA too much, except to say that there's no requirement for any surgery or medical treatment in order to obtain a GRC. So what this means is that you can have a wholly intact, fully functioning biological male who is nevertheless a legal female and whose birth certificate states female. And obviously, there's absolutely no requirement for any treatment whatsoever in order to self-identify. Um, I just want to quickly drop in the Equality Act here of 2010. So the protected characteristics include sex and gender reassignment. The starting position is that you're not permitted to discriminate on any of these protected characteristics. However, the single-sex exceptions allow for all males, including those with protected characteristic gender reassignment to be lawfully excluded from single sex spaces, services and communal accommodation for females where this is a proportionate means to a legitimate aim. So in that set of circumstances, discrimination is lawful. Um, The current Ministry of Justice policy on transgender prisoners dates from 2019, I'm just using the word transgender here because that's what the policy is called. Um, I just call them all men. Um, Allocation is initially on the basis of legal sex. So what that means is that all men with a gender recognition certificate must initially be housed in the female estate in the general population. There's no consideration given to their offense, their offending history or their anatomy. All men without a GRC, but who nevertheless identify as women, must initially be housed in the male estate because that's their legal sex. If such a man then wants to be transferred to a women's prison, he can apply and it will go before a transgender case board and they will consider allegedly risk to women, risk to the prisoner, conviction, offending history, etc. And he may well be transferred. Um, there's an important point here about data collection, um, and the Ministry of Justice has set itself up to just make a complete a mess of data collection, which you know is forever true and can never be undone. Because what they've done is, is that men with a GRC are always recorded as women or female, and only as women or female. This is in all data and all records. Men without a GRC are recorded as men, male, and additionally as transgender. So what this means is that any data, the MOJ produces on transgender prisoners will only ever include those without a GRC. That's in terms of prison population, it's in terms of assaults within the female prison estate, it will never include those with a GRC. So what do we know? We know from data, which was supplied by the ministry of justice last year in response to a freedom of information access requests submitted by fair play for women that as of the data collection point for 2019 there were 11 males with no grc held in the female estate number with a grc unknown 57 percent of the 129 males who identify as transgender and who are held in the male estate have at least one conviction for sexual offences. This is obviously out of, all disproportion- out of all proportion to female prisoners, where the rate of conviction for sexual offences is around 3%, and it's also far in excess of the rate of conviction for sexual offences for men, which is around 18%. So yes we're talking small numbers but these are the numbers we've got so we're looking at a a prison prisoner cohort which is quite unlike even men it's quite unlike any other Um, so in march at the beginning of march a judicial review was heard in the high court Um, And I want to look at the prison's policy in light of this as it shows some of the legal issues including human rights law at stake here and also the Ministry of Justice thinking around these issues. The judicial review was brought by a female prisoner who was sexually assaulted by a male prisoner with a GRC who'd been convicted of serious sexual offences and who was housed in a women's prison with her. As at the time of the judicial review, this male prisoner was still housed in a women's prison in the general prison population. The female prisoner challenged the lawfulness of the policies that permit males to be housed in the female estate with reference to the Equality Act and the Human Rights Act of 1998. Article 3 of the Human Rights Act states that no one shall be subject to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. The argument here was that housing male prisoners in the female estate violates women's Article 3 rights because it exposes them to a risk of sexual assault that would not arise otherwise. Now, what's important to note here is that Article 3 is an absolute right. So this means it can never be negotiated and it can never be set aside. There's also a minimum threshold of severity that must be proved. Article 8 concerns the right to respect for private and family life. This is not an absolute right and can be interfered with as is necessary in accordance with the law in a democratic society. And we'll see that this is important later on when we look at how the Article 8 rights of males who want to be housed in the female estate has been interpreted. So the argument in the judicial review here was that accommodation in a mixed sex environment is not an ordinary consequence of prison life and cannot be justified as necessary in a democratic society. Article 14 prohibits discrimination, including on the grounds of sex. The argument here is that although the Ministry of Justice claimed that the policies regarding transgender prisoners are neutral, in that they apply both to the male estate and to the female estate, and that in any case they don't apply to female prisoners, they only apply to transgender prisoners, nevertheless we know that women who identify as transgender, whether or not they've got a gender recognition certificate, are never held in the male estate because suddenly the reality of immutable biological sex becomes self-evident, very important, and it's a risk that nobody is prepared to take. Nevertheless, were females to be housed in the male estate, the impact on male prisoners is wholly unlike the impact on female prisoners of housing men with them. So according to the Equality Act, the argument was that the Secretary of State for Justice did not take account of the single sex exceptions that permit all male prisoners, who even those who identify as transgender and even those who have a gender recognition certificate to be excluded from the female estate. Less intrusive options to house this group of prisoners safely were legally available to the Ministry of Justice, but these were rejected. So the defence barrister made some quite interesting points which I think really revealed the Ministry of Justice thinking on on all of this. So with regard to the Equality Act, the defence claimed that the single sex exceptions are merely statements of permission, they're not any statement of obligation. The legal starting point is non-discrimination and in meeting this obligation a decision maker is free to ignore the single sex exceptions entirely or to implement a higher threshold for excluding males. The defence argued that this meant that the policy is fully consistent with the single sex exceptions. So whilst it is correct that these are statements of permission, they're not statements of obligation, The Article 3 rights, which are that nobody should be subjected to inhuman or degrading treatment, these are absolute and they're obligatory on all service providers. So the single sex exceptions give you a legal way to meet those Article 3 obligations. So you can't just wriggle out of it by claiming that, well, it's just a statement of permission. Yes, it is permission, but it's a legal permission in order for you to meet your legal obligations under another act. The defence also argued that, I thought this, this was particularly raised my eyebrows, that Women in prison will inevitably be exposed to all kinds of people representing all kinds of different protected characteristics from all kinds of backgrounds. And they simply can't just pick and choose which groups they do and do not associate with because it's prison. It was kind of verging on the, well, you know, you're going to be exposed to. Um, old women, you're going to be exposed to black women, you're going to be exposed to lesbians, so you'll also be exposed to women who have the protected characteristic gender reassignment, i.e. men. Um, It seemed that wasn't exactly what the uh, defence barrister said, but it was very reminiscent of that kind of argument that we see elsewhere. And to me, that just really seems to be quite a desperate move to get around the issue. And again, it just completely ignores the absolute Article 3 rights of women. Housing male prisoners in the female estate has quite often previously hinged on the Article 8 rights of these men, which is the right to respect for private and family life. That to deny them this would infringe on these rights that they have. Now, where this takes precedence over the non-negotiable absolute rights of women not to be subjected to torture, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, I think we really see the crux of this matter, which is throughout this women are seen as lesser, not fully human, and that their rights are just simply unimportant. So as we know, the MOJ collects no data on GRC holders. The defence explained that this is because the MOJ believes that to collect data on GRC holders and to identify them as such could be a criminal act in accordance with Section 22 of the Gender Recognition Act. Section 22 prohibits specific people in specific circumstances from disclosing information concerning someone's gender recognition status. The judges in the JR were frankly incredulous that no one knows how many GRC holders are in prison, particularly as a policy, there is a policy relating to GRC holders. As one of them said, well, if you don't know how many you've got and you don't know who they are, you haven't got a policy, you've just got a piece of paper. Article 8 rights are often cited here. However, for the purposes of safeguarding and risk assessment, the right to respect for private life must surely be capable of lawful infringement. I believe that there hasn't been a single prosecution under Section 22 of the GRA. However, it's clear that It has a chilling effect, which results in a can't ask, won't tell situation where someone's assertion that they have a GRC, or at least their refusal to say whether they do or not, is not challengeable for fear that to do so will be a criminal act. But this is just nonsense. I think that the application of Section 22 needs challenging in the courts. I find it difficult to believe that prison staff may not record and use GRC status for the purposes of safeguarding and risk assessment, and I find it impossible to believe that this could be successfully prosecuted. As I said earlier, I think that the Article 8 rights of this group of men, rights that yes, they are important, but they're not absolute and they can be lawfully infringed where there is adequate justification, have been promoted to the status of non-negotiable, absolute, inviolable rights. By contrast, the absolute non-negotiable rights of women not to be subjected to inhuman and degrading treatment have been downgraded to at most a mere afterthought. Going forwards, I think we need to shore up the single sex exceptions in the Equality Act with direct reference to the non-negotiable absolute Article 3 rights of women. A service provider just simply can't wriggle out of their Article 3 rights. You know, So if you don't want to have single sex spaces, well, that's fine, but human rights law is still going to go against you. In tandem I think we also need to seriously challenge data collection. It simply cannot be the case that a man's Article 8 rights to respect for private life, nor a provision in the Gender Recognition Act, render safeguarding and risk assessment impossible. I'm curious about the perspective on trans women who transfer out of women's jails as they feel safer in a male facility than they felt at the women's jail. There are reports around the abuse and harassment from women to the trans women. Um, My position is that all prisoners and all male prisoners have an, an absolute right to feel safe and secure in prison. And I know that this is a big issue about prison safety. Um, There are many groups of male prisoners who are vulnerable, uh, gay males, old males, disabled males, ill males, effeminate presenting males, as well as those who identify as transgender. In all cases, the solution to keeping males safe in prison needs to be addressed by the male estate, in the male estate, using resources that are earmarked for the male estate. And that's all I have to say on it.